Hey there, this is Pastor Jason, Christian Life Church, and we are pleased to bring you the recorded sessions from our recent Heritage 2020 conference with Tim Barton of Wall Builders. These first few sessions are entitled, What Makes America Special? How the Bible Shaped America. Enjoy. are created equal and endowed by their creator. Now, if you are created and you have a creator, they acknowledge the declaration. The, the first thing I would point to is that they acknowledge there was a divine creator. And this is going to be very, very important because your entire life is going to be shaped by whether or not you believe there's a God, right? If you believe there's a God, it changes everything about how you live your life. If there's not a God, it changes everything about how you live your life. And I'll go even further because in the declaration, they said this is the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. This is what everybody agreed on. When Thomas Jefferson did his first draft of the declaration, there were several things in there that weren't totally agreed on. And actually, Jay, uh, excuse me, John Hancock, who was the president of Congress, said we are only going to do what everybody agrees on. And if we are divided on our sentiments, Surely we will all be hung together. And this is where Benjamin Franklin, right, the really smart, pithy guy, says, well, surely we will all be hung together or else we will all be hung separately. They knew, right, doing this, this was essentially signing a death warrant because when the king saw this, the king was going to target them to be executed. But the point was, John Hancock said, we only will do what everybody agrees with. There were several grievances that Thomas Jefferson put in the original draft of the Declaration that South Carolina, Georgia didn't agree with, so they removed it. So this is what everybody agreed with. And we know that to be true because going forward, when you see their behavior, George Washington who was the first president under the Constitution after Congress did the Bill of Rights, and, and the Bill of Rights is now sent to the state to be ratified, the federal Congress goes to Washington and says, Mr. Washington, we think we ought to have a, a day of prayer, which was not a new idea because during the Revolution under Congress, Congress had had 15 different calls to a day of prayer in America. Governors had been doing that all the way back to the time of the Pilgrims. Governors were doing days of prayer. So they said we should do a federal prayer proclamation calling on all the people to pray and thank God that we now have a united nation living under a constitution, that we've done a federal bill of rights. It's now being sent out to be ratified. We should thank God for all we've accomplished. So George Washington writes the very first ever federal prayer proclamation. Actually, he issues it. And this is, we have an, a, an original copy of that proclamation. This is a picture of that original copy. And I want to read you how he starts off this proclamation. Here's what he tells the American people. He says, it is the duty of all nations. And let me underline the word duty. Duty is a word that is not often used in common vernacular anymore. 
If you go back and look up the word duty in Webster's original 1828 dictionary, it says that a duty is a moral, legally binding, or contractual obligation. So either moral, legal, contractual, it's an obligation you have. So Washington says we have an obligation, right? A moral obligation, legal, contractual, whatever it is. There is a moral obligation, and notice who he's talking to. He says it is a duty of all nations. And then he says to do four things. Number one, to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God. Number two, to obey his will. Number three, to be grateful for his benefits. Number four, humbly to implore his protection and favor. This is interesting. Because he says, not this is the duty of Christians, not this is the duty of spiritual or religious or Jewish, right? No, no, no. This is the duty of nations. Why would he call on nations to acknowledge God and not just Christians to acknowledge God? Because what we fundamentally believed in America was in America, we believe there is a God. Now, you don't have to believe in God to be in America, but in America, we believe in God. And so we believe we have a duty as a nation because God exists. If God exists, we have certain responsibilities we owe to God. So we have a duty as a nation. This is the very first presidential prayer proclamation in the very first year of our nation being a nation. Which, again, would point to the fact the founding fathers believed there was a divine creator. And, and, and we actually will talk about this a little bit more tomorrow with some of their prayer proclamations because this was a very common thing for founding fathers to do was to call their state or the nation to pray. But George Washington, the first one to do that. Now, that's the idea. That's the first principle, the first philosophy from the Declaration is we believe there is a God. The second thing from the Declaration you'll see is that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. We believed, outlined in the Declaration, that we have God-given inalienable rights. This is really, really important because if there is a God and God is the one who gives you rights, then government's not the one who originates our rights. Okay, and this is a really big deal because you only have two options in nations. Either government controls rights or God controls rights. Right? And this is where we said, nope, we believe that we have God-given rights now. We also have the words inalienable and unalienable, which the founding fathers used interchangeably, so it's the same meaning of what they're doing. But what are these inalienable, or what does even inalienable mean? So if you go back to the founding fathers, you have people like John Dickinson who was a member of the Continental Congress, but he also was a governor of Delaware. He was a governor of Pennsylvania. He also was a brigadier general, in, or at least the militia, in the Revolution. Here's what John Dickinson said about inalienable rights. He said, a right which God gave to you and which no inferior power has a right to take away. Now, I'll point out by definition, every power is inferior to God. So if God has given you something, he says nobody can take away what God has given to you. This thought was also followed up. Alexander Hamilton said something very similar to this, describing inalienable rights. He said they're not to be rummaged for among old parchments or musty records. They are written as with a sunbeam in the whole volume of human nature by the hand of divinity itself and can never be erased or obscured by mortal power. So what God has given, mere man can't take away from you. John Adams, again... This is a theme you see in the founders' writings quite often. I just chose a few examples. And I tried to choose, at this point, names we'd recognize. So John Adams, certainly we know, signed the Declaration. He was the first vice president, second president. Here's what he said. Inalienable rights are antecedent to all earthly governments. Rights that cannot be repealed or restrained by human laws. Rights derived from the great legislator of the universe. Now, beyond the fact he says that these come from the legislator of the universe, notice he says that... Our God-given rights are antecedent to all earthly government. That means these rights came before government ever existed. 
Well, if you think about the history of written records in all of human history, where is the very first instance ever of government? Well, it's actually, if you go to the Bible, the very first thing you see in all of recorded human history goes back to the time of Noah. When Noah lands the ark on Mount Ararat, when he gets off, God gives him commands, part of the Noahide laws or part of the Noahic covenant. And among this, God says, if man sheds blood, by man his blood will be shed, which was the idea that we're not going to allow murderers to roam freely and get away with this, right? We're going to put a stop to these guys doing bad things. But this was part of God originating civil government where God gave civil ordinance and civil laws. And this is the first time in recorded human history you find civil government. Why does this matter? Because this happens in chapter 9 of Genesis. Adam and Eve, you back up to chapter 1 of Genesis. God created man before God ever made government. And Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden had the freedom of speech, right? They had the freedom of worship because God said you can choose me or choose, right, choose any, any tree you want. You have the freedom. There's, there's a lot of things you can look at and know, yeah, God actually gave rights to man before government ever existed. Government existed after rights. That means government is not the originator of rights. Our rights came from God, not from government. And this is what the Founding Fathers made very clear. So if God gave us rights, the next question ought to be, then what are the rights God gave us? Sam Adams followed up with that thought, and here's what he explained. He said, first, you have a right to life, secondly, to liberty, and thirdly, to property. Today, people largely know life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Jefferson changed it to pursuit of happiness. All of the original writings were property, but an interesting thing happened. There were debates going on at that time about what property was and what property wasn't. And largely that surrounded the slavery issue. And the anti-slavery guys said, no, people are not property. And the pro-slavery guys said, no, we think people are property. So there are scholars who believe that Jefferson changed the, the very notion of life, liberty, and property, which even goes back to John Locke. Okay? So, so philosophers from way before the Founding Fathers. But Jefferson wanted to make sure we didn't confuse Right, what we meant by property, so he said life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Nonetheless, those are rights the Founding Fathers believed that were God-given. That God has given us those rights, and then the Bill of Rights further illustrated rights that we believe came from God. The First Amendment, there are five rights. Right, You have religion, speech, press, assembly, petition, and then you have the Second Amendment, the right of self-defense. You can go on through all these rights, whether it be private property, due process. Those are rights the Founding Fathers believed that the government could never take away from you. Okay, the Bill of Rights is restrictive only to the government, not to we the people. But in the midst of this, what's even more interesting to me is in the Ninth Amendment, it says that we believe there are more rights that belong to the people than what we have illustrated. And when those rights come up, they don't belong to the government. So we just want to be clear, federal government doesn't get anything else than what's written in the Constitution. Article 10 is the same thing except with the states. It says whatever is not explicitly given to the federal government belongs to the states. States' rights, states' power. Well, this is the rest of the Bill of Rights. But the idea is the Founding Fathers did believe that God was the author and the giver of rights. That every man has rights that come from God, not from government. And this is where they illustrated what the purpose of government was. The third thing they said that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. The reason government exists is to protect our God-given rights. This is a really big deal. Because there's now a lot of elected officials and even a lot of people running for office who think that government should be the one to authorize rights. Right? That government should give you 
this. Government should give you that. I remember when Obamacare was passed, and Nancy Pelosi, who was the Speaker of the House, got up and says, Americans should celebrate because we have just given the American people the right to health care. And that should have terrified almost everybody that heard that. Because if government can give you rights, they can also take them away. What made our philosophy of government so special in America as opposed to everywhere else, we didn't believe government had power to give and take away rights. Government's primary purpose was to protect the rights that have already been given by the divine creator. And you see this looking in the founder's writings. James Wilson was a signer of the Declaration. He then signed the U.S. Constitution. Only six guys did that. He's one of the six. After signing the Constitution, when we become a nation, George Washington has to appoint a U.S. Supreme Court. James Wilson is one of the first members. Washington appoints him to be there. James Wilson, as a member of the U.S. Supreme Court, also helped start some of the first law training in America for, for multiple students. It used to be, if you wanted to go to law school, you would study, you would take the bar, and then you would mentor under a lawyer. He says, why don't we do something where lots of students can come and we can train lots of students? Instead of just one at a time, let's train lots. So he started a system to train lots of students. He was the one who gave the majority of the lectures. His lectures were turned into the first law books in America. So all the early law schools used his lectures as their law books because this was a guy who had done it all. Right? Declaration, Constitution, U.S. Supreme Court. He knew what all this was about, so he's able to explain constitutional law. Here's what he told his students in his law book. The principal object of government was to acquire a new security for the possession of those rights which we were previously entitled by the immediate gift of our all-wise and all-beneficent creator. He told the law students, the reason government exists is to protect the rights God gave to people. Well, this idea was echoed by many founding fathers. Sam Adams, one of the guys certainly who was a leading voice in calling for separating from Great Britain because of the abuse of powers, he said government was originally designed for the preservation of the inalienable right. Government's primary job is to protect our God-given rights. And this is where he followed up and said that first, you have a right to life, secondly, to liberty, and thirdly, to property. Now, let me also just point out, it's interesting studying even some of their vocabulary. As, as people who study history, and actually it's true even when you look at the Bible, you always have to think about what is the context of which they are writing. And the reason I say that is because if we talked about a right to life, today, generally, we know the specific issue that's dealing with, right? When you have the abortion issue, we talk about, no, there's a right to life. We believe in the value of life because we believe life is sacred. God's the author and giver of life. But when the founding fathers write about a right to life, what would they have been talking about? Because if you know Constitution, U.S. Supreme Court law, abortion wasn't really legal until 1973, with Roe versus Wade, and then abortion became legal. So abortion seemingly is a pretty new issue. So what would they have been talking about? Now, I say that in kind of common day logic, although it's not really accurate. Because one of the things even the Bible tells us, Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, that there is nothing new under the sun. What that means is that problems that people have dealt with are not always going to be new problems, especially when it deals with the, the human nature, the sinful element of man. This is a book we have in our library from 1808. Notice the title. Observations on Abortion. Did you know they used to have abortion in early America or, in fact, in the world? Europe, very, very common. Somebody got pregnant, didn't want to be pregnant, they could say, here, drink this potion and it will end your pregnancy. 
And so in America, we had to deal with this issue. What are we going to do with the issue? And the founding fathers actually addressed the issue. You have people, oh, by the way, so when he says first of the right to life, they actually are talking about a right to life. And the reason we know that, you can go back to some of the writings. James Wilson talking to the first law students in America at the first really organized law training. Here's what he tells them the laws of America are all about. With consistency, beautiful and undeviating human life from its commencement to its close is protected by the common law. One of the challenges today is that now people argue, well, when does life really begin? And when does life really end? There's a professor in Texas who became infamous a couple of years ago. And, and he's not the only one to make this argument, but he's the first one I heard make the argument. He said that parents should be able to abort their children up to two years old. Because up to two, they don't have full sentience. They're not capable of surviving on their own. And he goes through this whole list. He says, therefore, they should be able to be aborted up to the age of two. Now, that's utter nonsense. But the point is, people do argue about when does life really begin and when does life really end. Well, James Wilson told his law students how the law interprets this. He said, in the contemplations of law, life begins when the infant is first able to stir in the womb. By the law, life is protected. Okay, so not only are we protecting an unborn child, I want you to think about the context of the time. Why would he say when the infant is first able to stir in the womb? Because if you're back in the 1700s, when did you know you were pregnant? Arguably, not till the infant's stirring in the womb, because before that, right, like maybe you had bad pizza, right? We don't know what happened, because at this time in American history, there's no magic stick that you can pee on that turns colors positive and negative, right? Like, there's no way. So how do you know? This is why this is an interesting point. Because by his argument, as soon as a mother knows she is pregnant, the law of America protects the life of that unborn child. This is interesting because in today, within eight days of a fertilized egg, a mother can know that she is pregnant. That is what he says the law is supposed to be. In America, we really did believe in protecting the life of unborn children. I'll go even further. John Witherspoon was a president of Princeton University. He personally trained more founding fathers than any other single individual at any university. He was a pastor. You can see he's wearing his clerical collar. He also was a signer of the Declaration. But as a president at Princeton, he was giving a series of lectures. It was in, in kind of one of the areas where France was going through another one of, of their revolts and their revolutions. And he was talking about how France and America were fundamentally different. It was lecture number 11 in a series of lectures. And one of the points he made about how America and France were different was this. He said a perfect right in a state of natural liberty is the right to life. And, and he talks about natural liberty because France talked about natural liberty. France said, we believe in liberty and equality and fraternity, and that's what we're fighting for. We want freedom. The difference was, in France, they didn't want to be guided by the moral structure of religion, of faith, Bible, Christianity. In America, we believed in that. France, they said, nope, whatever people want to do is fine, just freedom for all. Well, the French Revolution was defined by the guillotine. More than 40,000 people were executed by the guillotine, so freedom for all didn't really work for them, but this is what... John Witherspoon is explaining in the midst of this. He says the perfect right of uh, the perfect liberty is a right to life, but here's what he continued to explain to these students in his lecture. In America, we've denied the power of life and death to parents. How
how we are different than France, he says, in America, we don't let the mom and dad even have the option of eliminating that child. Why, why if we believe in freedom, wouldn't we believe in, in that choice? Well, no, we do believe in the freedom of choice on some level, right? But the choice the mom and dad had is what led to them getting pregnant. Because in America, we believe there is a God, and we believe that God's the author and giver of life, then we believe that that pregnancy is not the creation of man, it's a creation of God, right? And therefore, that's not something that man can take away. This is what the founding fathers even explained. This is something today we don't even understand some of that context. But the founding fathers said, the same Adam says, the first is the right to life. Now, why does that have to be first? Why, why isn't self-defense first? Why, isn't some, why is the right to life first? I think logically you could argue that if you're not alive, none of your other rights matter. So you have to be alive first, right? So maybe start with the right to life. But it's interesting that even today, if you look at the political climate we're in, and, and obviously there's going to be elections coming up, and I'm not here to be political, but just a perspective, okay? We do a lot of work in the political realm, our organization. We, we work with a lot of congressmen, senators, state reps, uh, local level. We do a lot of stuff, and one of the things that we have discovered to be very true over the years is one of the best indicators of someone's philosophy of government, even their worldview, is where they stand on the issue of life. And the reason is because it shows you the way they think and where they're going to go. And we can show this with over 90% certainty on so many areas, but let me just give you the example. If someone does not believe God's the author and giver of life, then I can tell you they're probably not going to be in favor of public religious expressions or religious liberty. The reason is, if you don't believe God's the author and giver of life, you probably don't believe we should have the freedom to acknowledge the God who you don't think gave us life. But if you believe God's the author and giver of life, then you believe we should be able to, right, a, a fourth grader in public school ought to be able to pray over their lunch because if there is a God, then you should be able to acknowledge the God who gave us life. But if you don't believe God's the author and giver of life, not only will you not believe in religious liberty, you probably aren't going to believe in the idea of, of self-defense because... One of the things we know is that life is sacred and precious because God is the one that gave us life. And it is sacred and precious. And, and let me also throw a little context, okay? Coming from Texas, I grew up on a farm where ranch, we hunted, we had guns around all the time. Uh, I am now a trained firearm instructor. And I'm a range safety officer. Um, I do a lot of shooting, so that's just full disclosure, okay? I appreciate the Second Amendment a lot. I have guns. I've never had gun accidents and all the gun training instruction I've done. We've never had a gun accident. With that being said, when I was in college, I ran cross country. After college, I ran marathons and loved running. I still enjoy running, just don't get to do as much as I used to. I love running. I used to think when I was in my early 20s, it would be so fun if one day somebody tried to mug me and I would just go, catch me if you can, and I would just start running. Because I can run 26 straight miles, and I feel like if, if a mugger stayed with me 26 miles at that point, he probably deserves my wallet, right? Like, that was a good race, good job, you can get my money. <laughs> then I got married, and I thought, that's the dumbest strategy ever, right? I can't look at my wife and be like, okay, babe, here's the plan. We're just going to run really fast a long way. I'd always been around guns, but... It, I never cared about having something with me because I never had something to me that was special enough that I wanted to protect it from something bad and something evil. But then I thought, you know what? 
I need to have a different strategy now that I'm married. And now that I have a daughter, you better believe, right? Running ain't a strategy for nobody. But this is the reality. The reason I even train with firearms is not because I ever want to have to use them in any context, ever. I, I don't want to be a gunslinger. I don't want to be a hero. I, don't, I, I never want to have to have that. But I also know I want to be able to protect my family because there are evil people in the world that do evil things. And because I value the life of my wife and my daughter, I want to protect them. This is where, even just based on the way someone views their right to life, I probably can tell you some thoughts on the Second Amendment. And, and we could have a much deeper conversation, a, a spiritual, philosophical. We could go deeper on this. That's fine. But the point is, I can tell you generally where someone stands in the Second Amendment just based on the way they view a right to life, and it's statistically shown to be true over time. Also, if you look at marriage, if someone doesn't believe God's the author of giving life, they probably don't believe that marriage is a covenant that God established between one man and one woman, and that was the way God designed it, right? Well, just based on the way someone views a right to life, I can give you a pretty good idea of how they're going to view marriage or even the idea of private property. And this one sometimes confuses people because why would life reveal property? Well, because if you believe God's the author and giver of life, you're more likely to believe in the Ten Commandments, which says don't steal and don't even covet what is somebody else's. And the Founding Fathers also explained that your private property included the wages or the earnings of your labor. And I would love to see government leave more of a money alone, but this is part of private property. Now, one of the things we live in a culture, that culture sometimes is conflicted. Because even though we know some things might be morally wrong, we also recognize those are social issues, and there's a lot of people that in the political circle say, now I'm really, I'm more of an economic person. I'm an economic conservative. I'm an economic libertarian. I'm an economic Democrat. Whatever it is, economics is what motivates them. And if economics motivates you, I understand why. I was a business major in college. Numbers make a lot of sense to me. And I understand that when you're more than $20 trillion in debt and you continue to inflate that balloon, that's going to be a problem somewhere in the future. Okay, I understand if we say, hey, there's a lot of problems we need to solve. I'm totally with you. But I don't think economics can still supersede life. And, and I think I can even show this statistically why. If we said the most important issue is the issue of life, there are groups like National Right to Life. The only issue they care about is life. And every single year, they will look at Congress. And they will rank the people in Congress who do the very best job voting to support and defend life. And every single year, they'll release their findings. This is from a year ago. So these are some of the people who had a perfect voting record on the issue of life. But let's say that life isn't the issue you care the most about. Let's say you care more about economics. There are groups that study economics. There are groups that will rank the very best economic representatives, people like Americans for Prosperity. They don't, they don't measure life. They don't measure the, the Second Amendment. They don't measure the environment. They don't measure climate change. All they do is measure economics. And when they rank their people who do the very best job voting economically, this is the list of the very best economic representatives. Now, those names are the same. Maybe it's coincidence. Maybe if we look at the people who are the very worst on life, and then we look at the people who are the very worst on economics, maybe now we'll see a change. And what you will discover is every single year, those names are virtually identical top to bottom. How could that be that the people that are best on life are best on the economy? And there's a really easy principle that we've forgotten in culture. So let me just explain it to you. If they won't protect your life, they won't protect your money. That's a really easy place to start, right? And this is where the founding fathers understood government's primary purpose 
is to protect your rights. And the first of those rights is a right to life. Whether you are a social, economically person, whatever you fall, the life issue is still the best indicator of where people are going to be on the other issues. But the point is, the Founding Fathers understood government's primary purpose is to protect our God-given rights. And one of the things the Founding Fathers even explained early on in the Declaration is they believed there were some, some moral rights and wrongs. They said to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitles them. Now the laws of nature and nature's God was a, a reference to the idea that there was a fixed moral law. Today people don't really recognize that reference because they don't recognize the phrase the laws of nature and nature's God. That's a reference back to William Blackstone who wrote Blackstone's Commentaries on the Laws of England. He had roughly 30 pages where he was explaining that everything we need to know about right and wrong... God has revealed in two ways. God has revealed in creation what is natural law, like the laws of nature, natural law, God reveals through creation, and there was God's divine revelation, which is the Bible, the laws of nature's God. Blackstone says everything we need to know about right and wrong, you can find in nature and the Bible. And he takes roughly 30 pages giving example after example after example. And it's interesting that one of the points he makes is even if we did not have divine revelation, even if you didn't have the Bible, you could still know a lot that was right and wrong just by looking at natural law. For example, if all we did was look at nature, what would we learn about self-defense? Does every animal have an instinct in themselves? Right? It's either fight or flight, but either way it's to preserve their life and then at times to preserve their young, right? Their, their possessions even at times. And this is what's interesting is we think that if we pass laws, all of a sudden laws will stop things or prevent things, which isn't always the case. And this is why even, even the notion of the laws of nature, if, if we said, okay, we're going to pass a law that says mama bears can no longer defend their cubs. It's against the law. You can't do it. Laws cannot violate, right? Written law cannot violate the law of nature because it... it it's contradictory to what God put instinctively inside of his creation. And, and this is where we understood, no, that's a law of nature, which is why we've always preserved the right of self-defense, because we understood that was something that God put inside his creation. Well, what about the idea of liberty? There's more than 10 million species in nature. Of the 10 million species, there's not a single species that enslaves its own or enslaves another species, except for humans. It used to be scientists used to point to one ant and said, well, this ant actually enslaves another ant. Well, then a couple years ago, scientists came out and said, actually, it seems to be more of a symbiotic relationship where they're working together and they both benefit from working together. So nowhere in nature do you see slavery. You could know slavery was wrong just because it violates nature, which even going back to original writings from the founding era, from, from abolitionists, from anti-slavery people coming forward, one of the leading arguments against the slavery movement was it violated the... Laws of nature. Because you don't see that anywhere else in creation. And this is what many anti-slavery founding fathers pointed to. Also the idea of abortion. Of the 10 million species, there's not a single species that murders a young while still in the womb. Even if we didn't have the Bible to tell us right and wrong. We could learn so many lessons just looking at nature. The same thing, homosexuality. Of the more than 10 million species, there is not a homosexual species. In fact, of the 10 million species, it's argued that... And, and this is by the pro-homosexual groups that study science and nature. They can point to less than a dozen of the 10 million species where it ever occurs or exists anywhere. 
And I would point out that nowhere in those species where they say, well, it occurs in this one and this one, they, they point to 8 or 9 or 10 or 12. Nowhere in those species does it occur as a pleasurable act. Being somebody that grew up on a farm and ranch, I've seen a lot of nature happen. And at times you do see a male and another male, but it generally is about an issue of dominance, not about sexual pleasure. And that is a very, very different thought, even in that argument. But the point is, there's not a homosexual species. That doesn't happen in nature. It's, and, and whenever it does, it's always the aberration, even in those species. It's not the norm. Even the same thing of transgender. We are dealing with issues today that are just mind-boggling, even if you looked at just the laws of nature. Now, the reason I point this out, I mentioned already, our, our family, we have horses and cows. We live in Texas. We have friends in North Dakota who invited us. Um, and they've invited us more than once to come and, and help them do a cutting and branding of the calves. And a cutting and branding, a cutting is where you are making a bull into a steer. Okay, I'm, I'm trying to be a little sensitive. There's some young ears in the room, right? But hopefully you're tracking. Um, and then you do, you do shots, you do the vaccinations, you do ear tags. Um, so you, you do the whole process and then you brand them. But in order to do this, they had cattle in the Badlands and over tens of thousands of acres. So we got horses, we got up, we're pushing the cattle out of the Badlands, we get down to the lowlands, and in the lowlands we have these corrals set up. Once we get into the corrals, we have fires going, we have Brandon irons in the fire. And so you'll have cowboys who will come up and they'll rope the back legs of a calf, they bring it over, a bunch of cowboys and cowgirls will hold it down, and within roughly eight seconds, we will have it branded. We'll have it tagged, we'll have the vaccinations, and we'll have a cutting if it needs to be cut. So this is a really fast, really efficient process going on. Well, as we're doing this, there are cowboys and cowgirls that are helping, that are participating. On the left is a cowgirl, on the right is a cowboy. You know what's interesting? In the midst of cutting and branding, you only cut one of the two, right? But in order to do that, you have to know the difference. It's interesting that whenever we pulled a calf over, there was never confusion between the boy calf and a girl calf. Ever. Because all we did was look down and go, oh, that's what it is. Problem solved. We have come to a place in society that we think we are smarter than God. And instead of doing what we've done for the history of humanity, just looking down... We now say, well, we have to figure out what's between their ears and let them mentally... No, 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 no. You're complicating what should be the most simple thing in the world. Why? Because what does the Bible say? The Bible says and God made them male and female. I think we just solved the problem. Right? But this is where, let's say, even if we didn't have the Bible, just, just look at nature. Right? Nature would show us the answer to so many questions that we now seem so confused on in culture. Another one, property. Are animals at times territorial of what they think is theirs? Of course they are. The laws of nature shows you that property exists. The idea of accumulation and profit. Why is it that certain animals get really fat? Because they just keep going and keep eating. And you know, God never once told the squirrel, you have too many nuts, go put those back. No! If you can get more, high five, good on you. The laws of nature are not against the idea of accumulation or profit, right? And you see this all over nature. I don't have time to go through all the examples, but there are a lot of them there. Even things like association. In nature, animals sometimes choose unusual friendships with other animals, right? That are outside their species. And, and, and it's just, it, it's interesting 
But here's the point. In the laws of nature, you are free to associate and hang out with the groups you want to hang out with. We are saying in culture today that if you are a photographer, if you're a florist, if you're a baker, right, if you have a certain profession, that we're going to make you associate, participate in certain activities, even if that's not what you want to associate with. That's a violation of the laws of nature, okay? Where there are cases going, actually, ADF, who's going to be talking to you guys in a minute, there's cases in the U.S. Supreme Court related to this very thing right now. It violates the laws of nature and nature's God, but here's the problem. In nature, there's also things like theft. There's things like adultery. There's things like incest. There's things like murder, which are actually common in nature as well. And this is where Blackstone points out the reason we have divine law or the laws of nature's God is because things that might have been confusing in the laws of nature, whether it's because of the fall of man, we live in a fallen, broken world, fallen, broken understanding, whatever it is, he says, we don't understand, we don't see the perfect picture. He says, that's why God gave us a revealed inscription, right? The revealed word to us so that we would know, because if you look at the Bible, you know what? The laws of nature's God clarify everything that might have been confusing, because it says, you don't steal, you don't commit adultery, right? You don't murder. It clarifies what might have been confusing, but here's the point. The founding fathers in the Declaration talk about how we are going to follow the laws of nature and of nature's God. The founding fathers also said part of the common law, laws of nature and nature's God, is what we do in America, and the common law is based on the Bible. That is from their writings. So this is where we said this is our moral foundation. How do we decide right and wrong? We go back to the Bible, common law, the laws of nature, nature's God. This was outlined in the Declaration, and you find it all over the writings of the Founding Fathers. And here's why I bring this up. Because we believe there was a God who gave rights to man, government's role was to protect those rights, that there were revealed rights and wrongs, right? Beyond all of those four things, the next thing the Founding Fathers talked about is governments are instituted among men deriving their just power from the consent of the governed. We absolutely believe in the consent of the government in America. It's why in the Constitution it says, we the people. We're the ones in charge. And, and pretty much every founding father agreed with this with, without any controversy. No matter what political side they were on, George Washington became the leader of what eventually became known as a Federalist. Well, as a leader, here's what he said. The fundamental principle of our Constitution enjoins that the will of the majority shall prevail. So we believed in the will of the majority. Thomas Jefferson was the leader of what became the Anti-Federalist Movement. And here's what Jefferson said about the will of the majority. The will of the majority, the natural law of every society, is the only sure guardian of the rights of man. The only way we can fully protect people's rights is to make sure that the people get to have a voice, that, that the will of the majority prevails. The reason I point this out is everybody agreed with the consent of the governed. But notice where the consent of the governed comes on the list. It comes after we've acknowledged there is a God and that God's given rights to man and government's primary purpose is to protect those rights and that God has revealed rights and wrongs to us. Only after that do you have the consent of the governed. Why does that matter? Because the founding fathers never believed the consent of the governed could violate those first four principles. It doesn't matter if we vote and say, you know what? Partial birth abortion, now it's okay. You pick whatever violation you want. You know what? Murder is now okay. Nope, it's not. Why? Because murder violates the idea that there was an inalienable right that was the right to life. And government's job is to protect that right. And God has already told us in his moral law that murder is wrong. So because that violates those first world principles, you can't do that. Well, if you can't vote on moral issues because they've already been determined by God, by the Bible, by creation, then what do you vote on? Well, you can vote on 
if the sidewalk is five feet or six feet or seven feet, if the speed limit's 25 or 35 or 45, right? You can vote on, there's a lot of things you can vote on, it's just not the moral issues that are already outlined and defined through those first four principles. And this is where today a lot of people confuse some of these thoughts. And, and, and let me give you one more thought. One of the things that a lot of people are concerned with today is the growth and expansion of government. So let me give you a thought with that. A secular government cannot and will not ever be a limited government. Here's why. In life, you have only two options for government. You have a really big God or a really big government, but you don't have both. The more a nation moves away from God, the bigger their government gets. But the more a nation recognizes and relies on God, the smaller their government is. And the reason it's smaller is because I don't believe government is the meter of my needs. What does the Bible say, right? And Paul said, my gosh, I supply all my needs according to the tradition of the Lord in Christ Jesus. When, when we diminish God, government steps up to fill the gap that God used to be in. And there's a lot of people today concerned about the overreach of government and we've made a disconnection about why government is expanding. And I don't mean just a number of people. I mean what they are taking on. In the Constitution and the, uh, the subsequent amendments, there are 17 powers that are given to the federal government. Constitutionally, they're allowed to do. They're doing a lot more than 17 things right now, and that list is continuing to grow and expand. But part of the reason is we've moved away from remembering what the point and purpose of government was, which the Founding Fathers, again, were pretty clear about. As we wrap up this first session, I want to I finish with a thought by Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson, uh, one of the, the more notable founding fathers, Washington, D.C., he has a memorial. And if you've, if you've ever been to D.C., go see the memorials. Seeing them at night is, to me, the most special because it's beautiful. They're lit up at night. But inside the Jefferson Memorial, there are five inscriptions. And one of those inscriptions is one of the things he wrote on the notes of the state of Virginia. And I'm going to read you what that inscription is inside the Jefferson Memorial. And can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we have removed their only firm basis? Now, just think through what he's saying. Can our freedom be safe if we remove the foundation? Okay, so we care about preserving freedom, but what is the foundation we have to preserve? He says, a conviction in the minds of the people that these liberties are of the gift of God, that they are not to be violated but with his wrath. The foundation is remembering that what we have came from God, not government. And I would point out, he says, this has to be a conviction. A conviction is a deep-seated inter, right, something going on. Because honestly, every politician pays lip service, right? I don't care what side of the aisle they're on. Everybody says what they need to say to be elected. I, that's the world we live in. We have to have people who are representing us, and even of ourselves. We have to go, no, wait a second. No, no, no. The most important thing is that people recognize you're not God. There is a God. You're not him. Your job is to protect what the real God has already given to us. God's already given us the rights we need. We just need a government that will keep themselves in check and know their role and do their job. But this is what he says. You have to have people that have that conviction. The problem is too many people that run for office don't have that conviction or many that do stay in politics so long that they lose that conviction. And, and this is where our nation is struggling today. And here's where he concluded the thought. Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and his justice cannot sleep forever. I 100% believe that God is a just God. I think the Bible reveals it, and, and, and this is part of my faith, absolutely. And I believe the sentiment from Jefferson that God is a just God. And if we come to the place that we are, are not respecting 
right? The rights that God gave, that, that they're not significant. We're going to lose those. No nation in the history of the world has lasted forever. None. So it's illogical for us to imagine America would last forever. But we are going faster and faster down this slope the more we forget the principles that made us special, that we have rights that came from God. There is a God who gave us rights. Government should protect those rights. The reason, though, I will tell you at the end of this, that I think not only as we look at this philosophy, I think it's true, I think there is hope for us as a nation. Because there are a lot of people who are frustrated and desperate for change. They just don't know what kind of change they need. And here's the reality of living on a farm. You can be frustrated that you don't have the crop you want, or you can just start planting the seeds again that eventually will bring the crop you want. The great news for us is all we have to do is start planting that seed again. And we have a culture that is desperate to find truth. It just needs people that have some answers that can speak into those issues. Because most people don't speak in issues. And actually, a weird statistic that came out last year, it, I think it's very much lived out to be true. The people that are most likely to speak out on the issue self-identify as liberal. What's fascinating is when they were surveyed about the issue, they were the least likely to know about the issue. Most likely to speak about it, least likely to know about it. They then, people that self-identified as conservatives, they asked them, okay, conservatives, least likely to speak out on the issue. So they asked, why don't you speak out on the issue? They said, because I don't feel like I have a full grasp of the issue, and I don't want to look dumb or say something that's not true. Now, that's fine, but understand, there's a lot of people who don't know what they're talking about, and they're happy to tell you what they think. What our culture needs are people that know the truth who will start speaking up because too few people are speaking up. And this is where we just got to get back and start finding the truth. One of the things I'll point you to, we have a website, wallbuilders.com, where we have hundreds of articles. Uh, we have hundreds of videos, all kinds of resources, free stuff that's there. We also have lots of product. One of the cool things I will point you to, we'll talk about it more over the, the next couple sessions today and tomorrow. We have what's called the Founder's Bible. And for 30 years, we've been collecting the writings of the Founding Fathers and we've made a note when they would talk about how a specific Bible verse shaped what they were doing with public policy or with an institution or with government. And what we did in this Bible is every time that we have them talking about that verse, we put their quote beside that verse. There are thousands of quotes from Founding Fathers in this Bible talking about how the Bible helped shape what they did in policy and education and medicine and right, whatever the field is. And so we would encourage, first of all, Everybody study, read, know the Bible. But beyond that, if you want to see how the Bible literally directly shaped impact in America, this is a really cool way to see how that happened. We also have it in digital form if you prefer to have stuff on your phone or on a tablet or whatever else. Um, so that is available. But there's a lot of stuff that we have to help educate you. So if you're someone who says, you know what, I'd love to speak out more. I just don't really know what all is there. We have lots of resources to help you be equipped to know truth so you can engage culture with truth. This is not a time to be discouraged because what you can know is culture is so hungry for truth. Every summer, I do nothing more with college students. And there's not much that's more discouraging in culture than college students. When you look at how little they know and how dumb they are and they're paying money to be that dumb, right? But what I can tell you is we've never worked with groups of people who are more hungry for truth 
once it was presented to them, they just didn't know what they were believing or what they were hearing wasn't true or why it wasn't true. This is where the more we learn, the more we can begin engaging and helping turn that direction around. find out more information on this event and other events happening at the Christian Life Church, please visit www.christianlifewaverlyny.com.